Hello, welcome to Whole Life Rising, a podcast where we take you inside the whole life movement. Each episode, we will welcome a guest, discuss issues, and share stories from the front lines of whole life efforts to safeguard human life and dignity at all stages of life. I'm Robert Christian, the editor of the Whole Life publication Millennial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Day, the executive director of Democrats for Life of America. So it's always a pleasure to be with you, Robert. All right. So let's get started with our segment in the news. The big news is the war in Ukraine. Kristen, what are your thoughts on the war and what we've seen there since Russia launched its invasion? It's just heartbreaking to see all these innocent people losing their homes, losing their lives, and just hard to grasp what is happening there. You know, if you think we are going on with our, our lives um, as normal and these bombs are uh, falling on these innocent people over in Ukraine, and it just it's a brutal and unprovoked attack by Russia. And I've been so conflicted because I want the United States to go in and do more. You know, like, why aren't we? Even, but there's also consequences to that. And it just, this war, and today it has no place in our society. And we respect and value human life the way we do. And the people of Ukraine have done nothing wrong, except for take a stand for freedom and uh, self-determination. So this, this aggression is just in a slap in the face to justice and human dignity. Mm-hmm. And so we just hope that this will end. I just had thoughts the other day, like this, is, this war just keeps going on and on. And I hope we don't lose sight of what is happening there. And that we must, this, this must come to an end and a peaceful end and the people must get uh, their self-determination back. Mm-hmm. While the whole life movement does include some pacifists and we're happy to have them as part of the movement, I'm personally a proponent of just war theory. And I think that Ukraine's self-defense is morally just and even heroic. Russia is attacking Ukrainians, of course, as you said, including innocent women and children, but also they're attacking international law and norms, both by invading a neighbor to steal its land and in the crimes against humanity that they're committing there. And that's a grave threat to human life and dignity. Ukraine, meanwhile, is just defending its territorial integrity and its democracy from a flagrantly unjust and immoral attack by a brutal dictator. But sadly, this whole thing doesn't surprise me that much because Putin has used these exact same tactics in Syria, directly targeting civilians, committing any crime necessary to achieve his aims. The scenes from Bucha are particularly horrifying, but that's who Putin is. And it's unlikely to ever happen, but he belongs in the Hague for these crimes Mm. against humanity. So in many ways, I think democracy and human rights and an international system based on law and respect for human life are on the line here. And I'm grateful for Ukrainians who are fighting for these things. And the U.S. is doing a lot right now to put pressure on Russia. And I strongly support those actions and hope the international community can do even more. Absolutely. We just hope that it comes to an end soon. Mm Mm-hmm. Turning to another whole life issue, in March, the Supreme Court ruled 8-1 that Texas may not execute a death row inmate unless his pastor can touch him and pray aloud in the execution chamber. Do you have any thoughts on this ruling? I think, I mean, my obviously opposed to the death penalty, and it's such a a cruel and inhumane way to treat any human being. The the ability to to pray and have that last moment with, um, in faith, I think is a huge victory for religious liberty. And 
very happy that the Supreme Court ruled that way. Uh, but we must push harder to end the death penalty. When you hear uh, people wrongfully convicted on death row, like we had at our last conference in the innocent people losing their lives this way is horrific. And I think my birthday is April 29th, and there's an execution scheduled on my birthday of um, death row inmate Bernard Moore. And I'm just hoping that for my birthday that they uh, stop that execution. And I'm just hoping that he has a chance um, to escape that inhumane and cruel punishment. Mm-hmm. Like you, I am opposed to the death penalty. I think it's bad policy, but I also think it's unconstitutional. I mean, I think it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. We look around the world at who executes people, and it's brutal dictatorships. It's not our fellow democracies, and that tells us something. And I think it is a positive development, this ruling for religious liberty, and also kind of maybe opens the window a little bit to recognizing that these are human beings with human dignity and should be treated yeah. with dignity. And then, of course, maybe the next step is to realize we already have them behind bars. They're not a threat to society. Killing them doesn't deter anyone. The only real justification is vengeance. And if we're trying to build a just society, we don't need that. Absolutely, Robert. Now let's move on to our question of the month. This month's question is, how did you become a pro-life Democrat? Kristen, why don't you start? Yeah, it's an interesting, it was an interesting process for me because I became involved in democratic politics when I was in college. I ran for precinct delegate. I was part of the college Dems. And at that point, I was just under the impression that you had to support a woman's right to choose to be a Democrat. Uh, Even though I was one of those, I'm personally pro-life and I would never do that type of people. Uh, And I went on to graduate and worked on Capitol Hill for two pro-choice members. And it wasn't until I went to the third office on Capitol Hill that I was the new person in the office and they give the new person all these so-called bad issues. And I was given the abortion issue. And that is when I found out that you could be a pro-life Democrat. My boss was Congressman Jim Barsha and he was a pro-life Democrat. I was so excited to finally be who I was and be Mm -hmm. able to talk about it in the way, like, I'm a pro-life Democrat. You don't have to support abortion if you're a Democrat. You can support human dignity. You can support the mothers. You can support the babies. And you can promote this whole pro-life ethic. Uh, So I was very excited. It sort of felt so freeing. And it was very, very uh, thrilling to be able to um, really advocate for all the legislation that was going on the Hill. My boss ended up becoming the co-chair of the pro-life caucus. So worked uh, very closely to encourage Democrats to vote pro-life on all the amendments. And it was an exciting time. And uh, so very thrilling to be able to do that. So anybody listening out there, you can be pro-life and Democrat. Don't hide who you are. Be proud of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my own story is I became a Democrat because I really believe that government can and should make people's lives better. You know, I saw the role of the federal government in ending slavery, taking on segregation, ending the Great Depression, trying to help those who lacked access to their most basic needs. And I thought that it was its job to do this and that sometimes only government can step in and protect human life and dignity in these circumstances. So that drew me to the Democratic Party. In many ways, I'm kind of a New Deal Democrat, like my grandma Edna, who was a Democrat for those bread and butter economic issues and uh, the belief that the government can do the right thing. Um, Not that it always does, obviously. In terms of the life side, 
I didn't think that much about abortion or the death penalty with real depth until the towards the very end of high school, I would say. And my views, which were pretty incoherent, really came together in college when I started studying theology and philosophy on my own. And I came to believe that it's always wrong to directly and intentionally kill an innocent human being, and that government policies should be premised on protecting the life and dignity of every single person. And then I kind of understood how my positions on abortion and just war theory and the death penalty and the social safety net all fit together and reflected a kind of communitarian approach to politics that makes sense the most when we see how they're kind of woven together and interconnected. So that was kind of my evolution. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, back to the why I became a Democrat is I come from a um, from, from Michigan originally, a big pro-labor state, and, you know, seeing how all the regulations to make the workplace safer and to protect those in the labor industry, that was a big part of um, why I came to be a Democrat. And also, you know, yeah, the, I, my belief that the government has a, there's a role for the government to protect and support people. And it's an important role to help the poor, help the different disenfranchised. In fact, my first boss on Capitol Hill uh, wrote the OSHA law because his father died in a factory. And so he wrote the regulations to oh, wow. protect workers um, in the workforce. So it was a, had a real impact on me um, to show what the government could do in a good way to support and help people, which is for me really problematic now to see the, the Democratic Party eliminating health and safety regulations for the abortion industry, which is counterintuitive to what the Democratic Party stands for. So we really need to bring the party in line with what its foundation stands for in protecting people. Yeah, the, then the pro-choice movement has injected kind of anti-government rhetoric into the party, yeah. which to me deeply undermines our overall mission. We have to have the public trust that the government can and should do the right thing. But if you're constantly saying, get government out of here, get government out of here, people might actually believe you and want that. Yeah, it's just so interesting to me to see that with this, we have this carve out for the abortion industry when we promote regulation, health and safety regulations everywhere else. Uh, you know, even, to, uh, you know, with the oil companies, making sure that they're not exposing the environment to dangerous chemicals. We mm -hmm. want to make sure that that's not happening. But we don't want to put those same protections to make sure women are not being exposed or treated dangerously in healthcare settings. It's just very discouraging to see the party taking this turn, this direction. So we really need to bring them back in line with the mission. Yeah. Our guest today is Father James Martin. Father Martin is a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large in America Magazine, and has a big following on social media, where he's often promoting whole-life principles and standing up for the dignity of the marginalized and vulnerable. He's the author of many popular books, including his latest, Learning to Pray, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, This Our Exile, about his time with refugees in East Africa, and Building a Bridge, which is about building a bridge between the Catholic Church and the LGBT community. Father Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. So yes, thank you for, for being here today. It's such a pleasure to, to speak with you. The fo focus of your work has been um, in recently involving gay, lesbian, and transgender people. So was there a particular event or encounter in your pastoral work that led to, to start focusing more on these issues? 
and you've talked about this as being a life issue. So can you go into what, why do you think this is a life issue and um, talk about the threats to the LGBT community, what, what they face here and around the world? Sure. Um, and I'm glad you said that it's, it's kind of a recent ministry, and it is. I mean, most of my ministry has not been focused on this community. Most of it has been, you know, writing, as well as uh, in my Jesuit formation, working with refugees and homeless people and communities like that. Uh, but the answer to the question is really the Pulse nightclub massacre in 2016, when 49 LGBTQ people were killed in Orlando. And what struck me was the lack of response or the fairly paltry response by uh, U.S. bishops. And I just thought, boy, even in death, these people are invisible to the church. So that kind of got me started. Um, yeah, I do think it's a life issue for a couple of reasons. Well, one, I mean, one of the basic reasons is that in many countries in the world, um, you can be executed for being LGBT. Um, you can be jailed, um, harassment, beatings. In the United States, um, it's uh, the, the rates of suicide are really astronomical for groups like transgender people. Some, I, I was writing an article on transgender people, and um, I think I think if I'm right, it's something like 40% have attempted suicide. I mean, this tremendous number. And so, you know, if we care about lives, as I do, uh, all lives, we need to also care about LGBTQ people who are being killed in some countries and, uh, you know, um, taking their own lives. And then, you know, just the, the kind of outrages on their dignity uh, that happen, you know, really beating, harassing, being kicked out of places. So yeah, it is a it is a life issue, I think. It's one of many. That's why I like the whole life idea, of course. Do you think that the pro-life movement, that there's room in the movement to focus on these types of issues, that they can be part of sort of a broad coalition working on this stuff? Well, I think it should be. <laughs> Whether or not it is mm -hmm. or can be is another story. I think that there's so much, well, there's a lot of homophobia out there, a lot of transphobia, to use a, a newer word, and that's changing a bit. Frankly, the, the most uh, effective way of changing it is to have someone in your family that comes out to you and suddenly everything happens and you change. And I get all these letters from people saying, oh, you know, I used to be critical of you. Then my daughter came out. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And, um, you know, I think it's very similar to like refugees and migrants. People might have certain stereotypes about them until they meet them. And then they say, wow, these people are so inspiring. They're working so hard. I think, you know, I, I try to present it always as, uh, you know, the, the seamless garment, the consistent ethic, that these are people's lives. And I think the only other group that uh, some people in the pro-life movement might have trouble with are people on death row, mm -hmm. right? But but these are valuable lives too. And so it's, it's everybody. It's the unborn child in the womb, the refugee at the border, the LGBTQ person is, you know, being beaten or is in jail. And on and on and on. The, the the person in a hospital, the Ukrainian refugee, they're all they're, the lives are all valuable. I, I truly I truly don't understand actually how people can segregate. Some lives are valuable, some lives are not valuable. And so I, so I, it it should be part of everybody's calculus, but it isn't quite yet. Now, if if someone believes that um, civil marriage should exclusively be between a man and a woman, if they were to start speaking up on these sort of direct threats to the lives of LGBT people, do you think they would be viewed as allies or as part of the problem that drives some of this violence? Well, I think it depends who they are and what they say. So, for example, you know, we um, I worked with the Tyler Clementi Foundation, which is against bullying, to um, try to invite as many bishops as possible to sign on a letter that said 
nothing more than we are against violence uh, and execution of LGBTQ people. That's all it said. It said nothing about same-sex marriage or, and even in my own work, I don't challenge any church teaching. We could only get 13 bishops. So only 13 bishops out of, what, 300 were willing to say, I am against violence um, towards LGBTQ people. To make it more palatable, we even took out uh, a line saying that we should advocate for LGBTQ people in their, in their persecution. And one bishop who will remain nameless said, I'll sign it if you take out the word advocate. And I'm sure many of my brother bishops will sign it more readily. We took it out and that was kind of shocking to me. Like you couldn't even say, I am against beating up uh, LGBTQ people. That was seen as too much. So to your question, um, it would be great if they, I, I think, and I've said to many bishops and people in Rome that the three things I think that we can oppose easily um, is number one, violence against LGBTQ people and killing them, right? Uh, two, the criminalization of homosexuality that leaves people in jail. And three, uh, conversion therapies that are really dangerous. But even that's too much. You know, it's seen as, well, you know, we'd be, we'd be somehow approving of same-sex marriage. And, you know, I say to people, to use another example, we, we work with Jewish groups and we don't, we're, we're in favor of Jesus, right? We somehow are able to, to see our way clear with that. So it's frustrating. Yeah, I love how you touched on all, like you just listed all the whole life issues um, and the importance of all of, um, you know, against the death penalty and protecting life, mm -hmm. against the death penalty, attacking the preborn life, protecting immigrants. You know, I think that's where Democrats for Life is, we advocate for this whole life view as well. So, what do you think um, the gravest threat to human dignity is today? Where do we see this, the greatest threat? Well, the greatest, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think in terms of numbers, it would be abortion, as, I, as far as I understand. But then, you know, right after that, you would say like refugees. I mean, there's 65 million refugees. And you think of how they're living and, and how many die and how many are executed. And then I also would say, I think the death penalty. I think that really is a, you look, I am pro-life, but, you know, you could make an argument that, right, that women are kind of discerning in terms of abortion and things like that. The death penalty is just, it's, it's just the law. And, you know, we will take the life of this person and it is very overt. So I think they're all, I think they're all very grave. I, I really like what Pope Francis said um, about life issues, uh, which is equally sacred are these lives, right? In addition to the life in the womb. I have to say, you know, one thing, you probably know this better than I do. One thing that really struck me and that someone pointed out to me recently that really was quite surprising was the difference in terminology between the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which calls uh, abortion the preeminent life issue, and Francis, who says equally sacred. That's, those are those are two different ways of looking at it. And I, I until someone pointed that out to me, I said, "Wow, you're right. That is a that is a different um, approach." So I, yeah, I think they're all one of the reasons I work. I do the LGBTQ work is that almost no one thinks about it as a life issue. I think so. I think someone needs to say it, right? Yeah, and that preeminent language is particularly important within the context of American politics, where on many life issues, the Democratic Party is on the side of life, as you said, with sort of refugees and poverty and all these other issues. But then abortion, of course, is, the, is on the other side there. And if one stands out above the rest as the number one that should decide everything, that kind of tips their hand, I think, a little bit. 
Well, the irony is then the Republicans are like, it's like the opposite. Yeah. Uh, it's really, you know, it'd be nice to have, I, I'm not arguing for it, but, you know, if we had a Catholic, a Catholic party, I think I'd, I'd vote for them. It's a very, it's a very difficult question, but yeah, I, I do think that uh, that equally sacred language is is challenging for people, and you know, John Paul talked about it too in terms of, um, you know, in terms of life issues. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in, I think in Evangelium Vitae. So um, yeah, so so we're unfortunately in the United States, everything has become so political. Right, and and in the past, you've talked about the seamless garment or the consistent life ethic. Was it Cardinal Bernadine that sort of helped? shape how you view issues through this prism? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I was still young when, I mean, he died, I, I believe in the, I guess in the nineties. Um, and you know, I, to be honest with you, I, I, I entered the Jesuits in 1988 and I had no clue about <laughs> seamless garment because I had no, I had no idea. And I think the first time that I heard that, that phrase was associated with him probably in, in the Jesuits or in my theology courses. And I actually found it very, I, I find that the, the image really powerful, the consistent, I mean, it, why would you not want to be consistent? Um, and the seamless garment is really beautiful. And one of the things that really has always shocked me is how much pushback he got for that. You know, he got pushback from other cardinals and other bishops. And I just thought, well, how can you, how can you be against that? I think that approach has been, and you probably know this more than I do, um, you're, you're right up against it. I think when you mention the consistent ethics, some people just say, oh, that's can't you can't use that anymore. Well, what's what's wrong with being consistent? So do you have that experience that his stuff is kind of rejected in some circles? Well, he preempted some of the arguments against it, right? That every life is sacred doesn't mean that every issue is equally important. Mm -hmm. And he says that. But Critics of the consistent life ethics say that it has this flattening effect where the gravity of different life issues is sort of collapsed. But that's really ignoring what he actually wrote and said. Yeah. And I think also that the I I think you can you could argue otherwise that I don't think there's anyone in I don't think there's anyone in the United States. I think that's a big, big uh, claim who doesn't know that the Catholic Church is vocal against abortion. And so I think we need a little corrective because for a lot of people, that's, that's the only issue. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a Cardinal Bernadine fan. Yeah. I think we always, I always like to say that Democrats for life is the only one consistent with Catholic social teaching because we do support life from womb to tomb. And, you know, we do get pushback. We get pushback from Republicans, pro-life Republicans who say we can't be pro-life because we're Democrats. We get pushback from Democrats who say we can't be Democrats because we're pro-life. So it's a very difficult uh, road to, to travel, but you know it's consistent. And um, you know I'm proud of the work that we've done, and you know against the death penalty for healthcare, to protecting immigrants. And uh, you know I think where we stand is uh, hopefully we can get more people to follow us down this road and having this consistent position on life. Uh, but again, you know we do get a lot of pushback on the abortion issue, and I'm just curious, you know you've been. You, you post about protecting unborn children, and I'm sure some of your followers may get irritated by that push on um, and that very. advocacy on uh, on abortion. So does that enter into your thinking when you are writing uh, pro things against abortion? Yeah, no, I mean I know because I know I'm gonna I'm gonna disappoint some people. One of the one of the ways I've tried to to uh, deal with it is by not talking about it politically. So I and I have to say, look, I am. 
people will laugh. I'm not really a political person. So if I say something about, you know, the, like the Hyde Amendment or something, like I, you know, there are a million people that understand that we're Casey and all this stuff. I just, there's so many intricacies that I do not even venture into that. Not because I'm not inter interested in it, but because I'm not an expert. I really am not a politician and I don't know all the intricacies. And then there's always another, there's always on the other hand, oh, well, you forgot this, or you forgot that. So what I try to do is, is look at it from a spiritual point of view and a theological point of view, which is, I believe that every life is sacred. And I think that this is something that I've learned and I've sort of come to appreciate. And that's how I try to present it. I also try to present it, as you say, as a whole life and to, to say, to challenge both groups, to say that the unborn child is valuable and has dignity, to say that the LGBTQ person has dignity, to say that the refugee has dignity. I tend to think that people seem to see what I'm doing, but it's still, it's still really, I lose every time I post something about uh, abortion, I, I lose followers, but that's okay. I also, I don't want to vilify people. I want to listen to people. I want to listen to people who are you know, pro-choice. I want to, you know, I, I do. I know that women have consciences. I know that women struggle with, and men struggle with these decisions. And so I am also against the kind of, you know, vilification and sort of bomb throwing sometimes, you know, literally that, that goes on. And I think, unfortunately, sadly, can characterize the Catholic Church's response um, because I think we have to listen to people. So, but no, I do. It does enter. I, I know every, every January, every time I post something <laughs> and that's okay. I'm, I'm used to that. That that's kind of related to my next question, but, but first I want to say that I know how much whole life people do appreciate that you're willing to do that. And they do see some of the negative comments there, but the fact that it's coming from someone who is consistent and is showing just sincere commitment to protecting the life and dignity of every person, is, I think is deeply meaningful. Thanks. As you're well aware, you are harshly attacked on a regular basis by many right-wing Catholics, many of whom call themselves pro-life. What impact do you think this vitriol, this sort of hatred has when it comes from those who claim to want to build a culture of life? Well, I do. It's daily. Uh, and I think, you know, you might expect me to say, well, it doesn't have any effect. And now, it doesn't have any effect on me. I mean, I don't really take much of it in. Um, sometimes I get things canceled and what, and so I don't. I don't really. I don't really lose sleep. I, I can somehow. Sometimes I, I wonder how to respond. What's the best way to respond? Usually, the best way to respond is to say nothing. But it has an effect. Uh, makes things more difficult uh, for me. I think it makes the church look bad. I think it creates disunity. You know, the, the attacks are very personal too. So. There was just an attack recently on Catholic Vote saying, oh, it's just crazy. You know, so there's this question in the LGBT world about um, transgender people, and I'm, I'm writing an article about that. I'm, we're starting a new website called Outreach uh, that's going to be for LGBTQ Catholics. Now, look, I'm not an expert in, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an endocrinologist, um, I'm not transgender, and um, so I'm writing this article, and I also think that there's lots of, lots of good articles out there about um, hormone treatments for teen. I don't know much about that. So I posted an article that seemed, you know, reasonable. It was from the New York Times. And, and so Catholic Vote wrote, James Martin supports child abuse and genital mutilation. So, you know, you can kind of laugh that off, but it has an effect. I mean, people then really hate me and I get attacked and social media and people telling me, you know, death threats and things like that. And, you know, right to your, right to my Archbishop, Cardinal Dolan, right to my superiors, they get flooded letters. So 
you know, I think we can say, oh, that doesn't have an effect, but it does. You know, now, does it stop me? No. But it does make things some something some things more difficult. I do find it's frustrating to be really like misrepresented like that. I just it just it's just shocking. And it's it's you know, here's here's the thing. Here's what we have to understand. When you drill down beneath the political stuff, which is primarily where Catholic vote is, the theological stuff, the spiritual stuff, oftentimes you have to, and this is a sad thing in the church, you have to realize that sometimes people are just mean. And that's something that I've really had to kind of come to grips with. That, I mean, some of the stuff is just mean. It goes beyond, you know, disagreements and stuff. It's just, it's just hateful. It's like bullying in the schoolyard or punching someone in the face. Yeah, and I, I wonder if someone says that they are trying to defend human dignity. I mean, these attacks fly in the face of human dignity. Not to them. They think they're prophets. Mm-hmm. They're prophets, and they're they're supporting teens' life. Uh, and so that's why that's why I should be killed. I mean, I get death threats, oh, and uh, so they're I call them Catholic death threats. Um, it's uh, I wish you would die, so you could go to hell, um, and find out how wrong you are, or I wish that uh, you you too get ill and all this kind of stuff. So, so they think they're prophets, but you know, Francis Pope Francis has to deal with the same stuff. Yeah, and and I think Pope Francis has done a great job, sort of. We sometimes call him a whole life pope uh, with his rhetoric. I think, of, I think they all are, you know, th- they all are. They yeah. all are. And he's definitely one. But he's faced more criticism than John Paul II on how he's approached abortion. Right. Totally. Um, but that throwaway culture and, as you said, the sacredness of each life. I think you've already sort of intimated that maybe the U.S. CCB is choosing different languages or not connecting these issues in the same manner. Uh, is that a fair assessment? And what would you like to see from the U.S. bishops on life issues? Yeah, um, I don't know if it's my role to say like from the bishops, but <laughs> and I don't know if they'd listen. But um, yeah, I think more consistency. I think, you know, and I was going to say this to Kristen's comment earlier. Uh, I think this is much more common in Europe. So in Europe, they, they have a sense of, yes, we're against abortion. And there are other issues that we need to look at. Pope Francis said something really surprising in an interview with Jesuit magazines in 2013, that was really a big deal because it was kind of the first time he had been interviewed. And he said, which I thought was an interesting um, approach, that you know it's like a it's like a classroom. We have taught people about abortion, and it true. I really believe this. There is no one in the United States who does not know the Catholic Church's position, which has been very well articulated and very public and frequent. And Pope Francis said, now it's time to kind of go to other lessons you know, as you would in a school, like now we need to teach people about the poor, about refugees, et cetera, et cetera, about mercy to people on the margins, about the excluded. So I would like, frankly, I would like the U.S. bishops to, I think they've been very good on, great on refugees. I really have to give them a lot of credit, refugees and migrants. And, but in terms of LGBTQ stuff, I think terrible, to be honest, and just completely looking at it from the standpoint of sin, as if we're not all sinners, not including LGBTQ people in deliberations. Uh, some of the stuff I'm writing an article about this on transgender people is unbelievable. And just, it's all restrictive. And that transgender people are the result of gender ideology, which now I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm an expert on this now because I've been writing about it. And you talk to them and, gen, and transgender people say, we're not, we're not, it's not because I saw something on TV. You know, I felt like this since I was two years old. In any event, what's the point? The point is that I, I wish that they were, a little more um, 
I live with a little more whole life, to, to, coin, a, to coin a phrase. <laughs> Maybe they need the smell of the sheep a little bit. Well, that's right. I know quite conservative teachers, professors that have LGBT students that they engage with on a regular basis. And there's a greater sensitivity to these issues and the dignity of these kids that they're working with, I think, because of that proximity. Absolutely. That's what changes people. Encounters, the culture of encounters, as Pope Francis says, and stories, right? So I always say there's a reason why Jesus taught in stories. When he is asked, who is my neighbor? He says, a man went down from Jericho or down the Jericho road. He doesn't say, here's a PowerPoint presentation of the 10 things that make up a neighbor. <laughs> and when he says, uh, you know, how many, when Peter, I guess, says, you know, how many times should we forgive someone? You know, he, he tells the story of the prodigal son. He doesn't say, here's the, here's the, here's my discursus on forgiveness. He tells a story. And so stories convert people. And story that, I mean, the greatest kind of story is, is coming to know somebody. I know so many priests and bishops who have had, in a sense, conversion experiences because their niece or nephew is gay. Now, sometimes we can say, well, that's hypocritical, like they should have thought of that before, but they didn't. And it, it, and it took them a while to kind of get to know these people. And I think, you know, I think that's kind of what the bishops are called to do. We're all called to do. I'd like to go back to the plight of the refugees. And, you know, the, the Pope has talked a lot about this and um, you know, you've worked with refugee, refugees in the mm -hmm. past. And could you talk about what that was like and if it shaped your views for today? And yeah, maybe you can tell a story. <laughs> yeah, I changed my changed my life. So for those who don't know, since people think I'm just Mr. LGBT or Father LGBT, mm -hmm. uh, I worked for two years with the Jesuit Refugee Service in Nairobi, Kenya. I think two of the most influential, profound uh, changing, life-changing years of my life, maybe the two most. And I helped refugees from all over East Africa start small businesses. Still the best work I've ever done, even beyond the LGBT stuff. It was just creative and interesting and exciting. And, you know, one of the things I learned is how much they go through. You know, no one wants to become a refugee. And this baloney about like, oh, these people are coming to take our whatever on the South Pole. You know, these people are escaping from, they, they don't want to be a refugee. They want to stay in their home and they're looking for a way out and safety. And I think one of the things I learned is, is, is the danger of kind of categorizing people or stereotyping people. Here's my story that I like to tell. It's a great, it's a fun story. Um, so, you know, you look at refugees, you say, before I went, I said, well, you know, these are all people from East Africa. They're all kind of used to that kind of life. You know, they're on the go. They're all nomads, right? They're all like, cattle farmers. And so, you know, being in a refugee camp, I mean, not that I would want them to be in a refugee camp, but, you know, they're kind of used to that, right? They, they all live in huts and so it's not so bad for them. Just insane. But that was how I went over there and, you know, willing to help them. So the very first refugee I met, number one refugee I met, I was working for a time at the UN processing center in Nairobi. Imagine that. Uh, run by the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And I was supposed to do intakes. Very first guy I met comes in. He's from Somalia. So this was in 1992. So, so the Somali war had just ended. I was in Africa between Somalia and Rwanda to kind of situate it in terms of history. In any event, long story short, he sits down, very tall, kind of disheveled, dirty, ragged clothes, you know, not rags, but, you know, he'd been on the run, obviously. I've been studying Swahili, and I said to him in my bad Swahili, uh, you know, Jambo, um, hello, 
uh, what language, nice to meet you, what language would you like to speak in? And he said, in perfect English, English is fine, so is French, Italian, German, and Latin. Wow. He was a professor of philosophy from the University of Mogadishu. Oh, my. Yeah, I get bums thinking about it. Yeah. And I just thought he's more educated than I am. And this is, this, is, this is the point. We tend to think of them as categories. We can't. They're individuals with lives and histories and desires and uh, education and uh, hopes and dreams, you know, like Gaudi Metzbez says, joys and hopes and griefs and anxieties. And that, that was the, it was really striking. That was the very first person I met. And I thought, boy, I just, I, and I was, it was stunning. And he went, he spoke beautifully and talked about his experience. You know, he was forced from Mogadishu during the war and went to a refugee camp. You know, it's, so it's, uh, that, that to me is, people are not categories and not stereotypes. And that goes for LGBTQ people. They're individuals with lives and experiences and, and we need to treat them like individuals. Thanks so much for joining us today. Anything to plug? New new book, new website? Sure. Well, my new book is called Learning to Pray. It's just out in um, paperback. It's an introduction to prayer. And then, uh, yes, we're starting up a website called Outreach. And uh, it is for LGBTQ Catholics and those who minister to them. And a little interesting tidbit, uh, the new, um, you know, .com, .edu, .org. Um, this is, there's new, this is outreach.faith. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> so, yes, I hope you enjoy it. And, uh, and I'm really, thank you for your work. Thank you for your work and your ministry and uh, for reminding people that every life is sacred. Oh, thank Thanks you, so too. Much. Thank you for speaking up on the whole life issues. We definitely need more people spoke, speaking about womb to tomb and human dignity and protecting all those who need assistance. So we really are grateful for your advocacy. Well, as long as I'm alive, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs>
Roe is overturned, abortion will be illegal. And why we do want abortion illegal, uh, or not illegal, you know, just unthinkable for women, we just really need to stress the importance of having this network of support in place for women. Uh, you know, I think Pennsylvania has a real alternatives program. The state of Texas, you know, they just increased the funding for alternatives to abortion. So we really need to do more to push support for these, for women who find themselves in these unplanned pregnancies and can choose alternatives. We like to say real choice. Uh, we just had a, a really disappointing defeat in Colorado where they passed an extreme abortion bill. Again, this, this strategy of eliminating health and safety regulations for women to keep women safe is just not a sound democratic strategy at all. And unfortunately, Colorado just did pass a law that basically allows abortion up to nine months. There's there's a late-term abortion clinic in Colorado. And unfortunately, too, we don't know anything. They don't keep statistics uh, on the number of late-term abortions or how many abortions are performed or and when, because uh, they just don't want that information available to face the reality of what is happening in the state. On some good news, though, the, we are uh, involved in the state of Kansas. Uh, we have Democrats for Value Them Both that is active there. And value them both will be a, a vote in August to um, preserve the legislator's right to pass health and safety regulations to, to monitor abortion, to make sure that at least if it's legal, it's it can be safe. Because uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the state constitution provides a right to abortion, which it does not. So this legislation is necessary to clarify that the state constitution doesn't allow abortion. There's no constitutional right to state constitutional right to abortion in Kansas. So we're really excited about the Democrats organizing there, and um, you know getting involved and in showing that there's bipartisan support for health and safety regulations for abortion. Mm -hmm. If Roe is overturned, we're going to see all of these come up over and over again, all these pieces of legislation everywhere, and addressing the needs of women and families concurrently with restrictions on abortion is vital, I think. Not just as a matter of justice, it is a matter of justice, but also politically, I think it's it's quite a bad idea to uh, not provide that support. I think it could generate a backlash. Yeah, I think the abortion lobby is really taking advantage of this situation in a bad way of scaring women into thinking that abortion is going to be illegal mm -hmm. and we're going to go back to 1973 when they know better. They know that Roe being overturned will just send this back to the states. But they're really terrifying women um, into thinking that abortion is going to be illegal and using this as, an, as, as a, a time to make abortion legal up to nine months because it's so out of touch with mainstream. You know, when you look at Europe, abortion is really most of the limit it's limited to 13 weeks uh, over most of Europe or 12 weeks yeah it's not legal up to the first trimester so we have a lot of work to do until the Dobbs decision comes up and even after to make sure that we have this network of support for women mm -hmm. absolutely finally I believe that Democrats for Life has announced the next whole life conference coming next summer, this summer. Uh, do you have any details for us on the conference? We are so excited about our next conference. We were going to have it in LA two years ago and then COVID happened and we had to move it short term to Ohio. Uh, we had our Ohio chapter did an excellent job putting the conference together in a very short time. So we, we switched it from California to, to Ohio. 
Um, but we're back in LA, and our our California chapter has been meeting and planning, and uh, they. I'm, in fact, I'm meeting with them in just a half an hour here to go over the speaker list and. Uh, I urge you all to, uh, you know, follow and sign up and come join us. It's so encouraging to attend these conferences and be with pro-life Democrats, pro-life of the whole life Democrats. It's just, it's so encouraging and so uplifting and you just to be around people who uh, agree with you and want to promote this whole life uh, vision. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our latest show. Whole Life Rising is brought to you by Democrats for Life of America and Millennial. We want to thank Democrats for Life for taking the lead in fundraising for the show. If you'd like to make a contribution to ensure the long-term viability of the show, please visit the Democrats for Life homepage or our show notes. And please subscribe to the podcast and give it a good review if you'd like to hear more. Until next time, thank you.